0: Uh, If you would, with me, go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 14. We're going to be looking at the first six verses of John chapter 14 this morning. And while you're turning there, I want to just pray. Lord, thank you so much um, that as the sun rose this morning... Um, our eyes opened and we still had breath in our lungs. Thank you for the gift of life that you've given us that every day we can open our eyes and have another day to experience your beauty, to, um, experience your love and your grace in our lives. Uh, and Lord today, especially we thank you for, um, being able to open your word together and learn from you and i pray be changed by you as we see you in new ways as we learn about ourselves in new ways lord uh, we thank you for the baby that was born um this weekend Uh, what a gift of life and it's just a reminder of what you do to each of us you've given us life in body and you've given us life in our soul and we want our lives to be um, a reflection of that. And that's what we pray for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. And well, um, why, don't we, why don't we jump right in and uh, get into our passage. Uh, so if you would read with me John chapter 14, starting in verse 1 this is jesus having a conversation with his disciples and this this passage is just six verses in the context of a much larger conversation this goes on for chapters of jesus talking to his disciples but here's where we break in with jesus saying these words let not your hearts be troubled believe in god believe also in me in my father's house are many rooms if it were not so And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we have a, a very uh, this is a, a very um, popular passage. At least verse six is for most of us. We've heard this before. Jesus' claim of himself that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And we're going to look at each of those this morning. Jesus as the way. Jesus as the truth. Jesus as The life. we're also going to talk a little bit about this house that Jesus is going to prepare, as well as Jesus' words here in verse 1, which I think is going to help us understand the context of this conversation, uh, kind of what's going on on a little deeper level between Jesus and the disciples, and I think will help us see a little bit closer who the disciples really are and who Jesus really is. So, First, the house. What's with the house? In verse 2, Jesus says, My Father's house has many rooms. I'm going to go prepare a place for you, but then I'll be back to take you with me so that we can be together. So what's Jesus talking about with the house? Is he building a real house? Any audio adrenaline fans in the house? You guys know the song of the, He's building us a big, big house with a big, big yard with lots and lots of food so we can play football and all that. Yeah, it's a fun song. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. <laughs> um, earlier in the, in the gospel of John, in uh, chapter 2, verse 16, Jesus refers to, he makes a reference to my father's house. But in doing that, he's referring to the temple, um, and we're not going to go into all these verses. You can jot these down if you want. I'm just, I just want to kind of step us through what this house is, what Jesus is talking about. So Jesus refers in, in John chapter 2, verse 16, to the temple as my Father's house. Now, the temple was a building um, designed by God, built by Solomon, where on earth the presence of God could dwell with his people, okay? So that is Jesus' Father's house. And then just a couple verses later, in John 2, 19, Jesus said, and this is in a a, a heated discussion with the Pharisees, he says to to the Pharisees, destroy this temple, speaking about the building, and in three days I will raise it up again. Now, they, they didn't know what he was talking about, but he's talking about himself right? Destroy this building, the temple where God's presence will dwell. And in three days, I will raise up my body, right? So th- there's, a, there's a correlation. Really what we know is they're going to destroy him physically. They're going to put him on the cross. He's going to die. Three days later, he's going to rise from the dead and be raised up again. And the correlation is the temple, the presence of God is coming to fruition through the body and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. So moving on, Acts chapter 7 tells us, goes all the way back to the Old Testament, tells us again about the tabernacle, that under Moses, God gave his people the tabernacle. This is a temporary, like a tent, that as they're traveling, they could set it up and God's presence would come and be with them. And then when they moved on, they'd tear it down and But God always wanted to be with his people. And then Acts Acts chapter 7 goes on to say that um, Solomon then built the temple that Jesus was referring to. So now we have a permanent dwelling on earth for God's presence to, to dwell and for God's people to come and be with him and worship him. But verse 48 in Acts chapter 7 says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Now it's not, it's not saying, in saying that, that <clears throat> okay, they had the tabernacle and they had the, the temple, but God doesn't ever dwell there. What he's saying is that the fullness of who God is, the glory of God, the vastness, the infinite nature of God cannot be contained in a small building built by men. It also is pointing to this idea that the tabernacle and the temple were not the end game. These were not the the, the final solution for God to be able to be with his people. They were just a stopgap. They were to fill in time and to communicate his Heart, his deep longing to be with his people. And so then we skip ahead um, to uh, the time after Christ has come and in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul reminds us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We now, through Christ, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, chapter. Uh, chapter two, verse five says he he, he kind of continues this this train of thought, and he says, "We are, you are living stones, being built together, being built up together as a spiritual house, a dwelling place of god do you see the do you see the connection the kind of the blending of of the building of the temple and the people of god so We are now the temple of God through Christ. God's presence is no longer confined to a building where we have to travel maybe once a year, maybe once in a lifetime to go commune with God. Now he is with us always. Promises to never leave us or forsake us. And so Jesus in our text is preparing a place for us to be with him. And he's using the this, this, this symbolism, the word picture of a building, of a house. Disciples would have been familiar with that. But how does this happen? How do we get to this house? How do we get to commune with God this way? Well, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. This is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. On the cross, Jesus gave himself up as a sacrifice, and on the cross, he paid for our sin. The penalty in full paid for your sin. The problem of our sin has been taken care of, once for all, through Jesus on the cross. So when Jesus went to the cross, yes, he went to pay for our sin, Huge, right? Massive. But I want you to understand that was a necessary step in accomplishing what God was really after, which is being with you. Because of our sin, we cannot be in communion with God. But with the removal of our sin through Christ on the cross, we can now be in full, intimate relationship with Jesus. So the removal of your sin made your nearness to him and his nearness to you possible. So Jesus went to prepare the way for a holy God to be able to dwell in the hearts of sinful men and women. And Jesus is the only way for that to happen. That is the only way for us to be able to commune with God and have relationship with God. He's the one who saves us out of slavery to sin and death. In Acts uh, chapter 4, verse 12, Peter declares early on in the the formation of the church, there is only one way to be saved. There is only one name under heaven by which we can be saved, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. See, all major religions work the opposite of Christianity. Um, They're based on moralism. They're based on how you behave. You have to be good enough in order to be accepted by said God of whatever religion you're talking about. The problem with this is we're all broken. You and I, our ability to be good enough, it's not that we can't be good, okay? In in the English language, the word good has a wide range of meaning, right? It's not that none of us are good but we cannot be good enough because our ability to be good enough is broken because of sin and the effects of sin. The reason I'm bringing this up about other religions is because even though probably most of us in the room would, would confess Christ, are following Christ, each one of us in our own way probably has a tendency to slip into the way other religions work. We hear of the grace of God. We read of a kind and merciful Jesus who paid all our sin, who took our shame away from us. And yet, in the, in the mundane um, details of everyday life, when we're faced with our feelings, and the various challenges and struggles that we encounter and we start to lose sight a little bit of uh, the grace of God, we start to slip into this idea that we have to be good enough. We have to earn our way to Jesus. So let me give you an example. The Ten Commandments, we all know what the Ten Commandments are, might not be able to say them in order. Um, The Ten Commandments were given to us, to God's people, not so that we could have a, a record of what it takes to get to God and so that we could each spend our lives trying to get each one of those right so that we could get to God, but rather to have a representation of who God is of God's righteousness, of his holiness, of his glory, of what he's like, of what's good. And as we look at it to understand, we can't do that. We can't. You and I can't. Newsflash, every one of us in this room has broken every one of the Ten Commandments. And here's the thing with God. You could say, well, I want to try to do better and do it better next time. But once you've broken it, you've broken it. It's like a it's like a, 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 a criminal record. Like you can get back out of jail, but you still have this on your record. So it, it doesn't work. It, it just, it doesn't happen. But that's not the point. The point is, that when we look at the Ten Commandments and see the glory and righteousness and goodness of God, and then we look at us and see, we can't do this. I fail at this all the time. The Ten Commandments and the word of God then points us to the righteousness of another. It points us to Jesus Christ. We fail over and over again and moralism and behavior modification and pursuing our own self-righteousness will never get us to God. It only leads to disappointment, discouragement, disillusionment, sometimes anger at God. But Jesus is the only way. And he is the way. That's a good news statement. He is the way and the only way And in our text this morning, he's going to prepare the way. He's leaving. He's leaving the disciples. In verse 1, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Why does he say this? Let not your hearts be troubled. See, at the beginning of the Gospels, Jesus called each of these men to follow him. And they did. They dropped everything. They left everything and they followed him. And for three years, they gave their lives to him. And the disciples don't know what's going on now. Jesus is telling them. He's been telling them. He's he's been dropping hints. And then he's been getting more clear about it. Guys, I'm going to have to go soon. They're, They're going to take me. And I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be handed over. And they don't know, they don't have a category for this in their minds. And so they're confused and they're afraid. They're wondering, what was this? If you can imagine three years of your life and then you're like, that's it? You're leaving? Now, Jesus knows he's not leaving. He, this is, it's getting better. It's getting better. Right, <clears throat> but right before our passage, in, in back in chapter thirteen, Peter asks Jesus, "Where are you going?" And Jesus tells him, "Where I'm going, you cannot come, but you will follow me afterwards." So, Jesus, where are you going? We want to go with you, He's, Peter. I've got to do this by myself. You, you've been following me for three years, but this I have to do by myself but I'm going to come back and you will follow me after this. There's, there's so many shadows and inklings here of the covenant. And if you know the story, all the way back in Genesis, God made the first covenant with Abraham. God called Abraham, Abraham by faith went, and and God made a covenant with him, a promise to him to always be his God, to be faithful to him, to use Abraham to be the first of many who would come into communion with God. But when it came time to make the covenant, a covenant is a handshake. It's a promise, it's a contract. When it came time to make the covenant between two people, Abraham and God, God put Abraham into a deep sleep, and God made the covenant alone. God made the covenant with himself, saying, I am covenanting with myself that I will be faithful to the promise I'm making to you. And we see this here. Jesus saying to Peter, You can't come with me where I'm going. But you will follow me afterwards. But what I'm doing right now is for you. Peter goes on, Peter being Peter, Jesus says, You, you can't come with me right now. And Peter says, Why not? <laughs> Why not? I'll lay my life down for you, Jesus. Full of passion. But Jesus said, Will you? He said, Here's the truth, Peter. The truth is, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Peter, here's what's going to happen I'm going to leave and do this big thing on my own, and you're going to fail me. But let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. Now, these words, if if I'm Peter, this is devastating. Is it not? Like, that's all you think of me? You didn't even give me a chance to try. And you're telling me I'm going to fail? Peter, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. That's what he said. Trust me, Peter. You are going to fail, but I've got you, I've got you. See, we're so surprised and defeated by our weakness and our brokenness, aren't we? We walk around assuming and expecting that we should be stronger than we are. And because we always find out that we're not, God is walking around looking at us disappointed, When we fail and when we sin. But that is just not true. It is not true. The truth is here's the truth you and I are weak. You and I are broken and bent. Now we're no longer identified by our sin because of Jesus. We are freed from identity as a sinner. Scripture calls us saints, but we are still frail. We are still weak and ever dependent on him. And to believe otherwise about ourselves isn't truth. He's not surprised or disappointed like you are when you fail. Can anybody believe that? He is not disappointed in you when you fail, when you show your weakness, when your brokenness shines through brighter than the the noonday sun. And we all have those moments. This is the truth of who you are. Broken, frail, and bent. And this is the truth of who Jesus is not at all surprised by your brokenness and your frailness, but eager, eager to come to you, for you to run to him. That is the truth of who we are and who Jesus is. Look at Peter. Jesus knows he's going to deny him, and his response is, don't worry, Peter, let not your heart be troubled. What would you do if in the middle of your failure, somebody came to you and said, don't worry? I know what I'd do, I'd say, this guy's a heretic. He doesn't care about sin, right? Don't you understand sin? Don't you understand the damage sin does and I could give you a whole litany of the problem with sin, the destruction of sin and what I deserve because of my sin? But I think what Jesus would say to us is, "I know, and I took care of all of that on your behalf, so that you're now free. You don't have to relate to me based on your sin." And later, the resurrected Jesus will come to Peter and will restore his crushed spirit. And make make no mistake. See, we we don't even realize that we process things like this, but. Make no mistake, Jesus, or Peter's crushed spirit did not come from Jesus. Peter's crushed spirit came from how Peter viewed himself and how Peter thought Jesus viewed him. And it was wrong. It wasn't the truth. And Peter will spend so much time with Jesus during this time when he comes back as a resurrected Jesus and he will learn what the real truth is. He will learn that what's true about him, what really matters about him is not what he thinks or how he feels, but what Jesus says about him and more importantly, how Jesus feels about him. And that will free him. Imagine if you could live like that. And instead of believing the lie that you need to be strong and stop screwing up all the time before you can be near to Jesus, instead of trying to be good enough so that Jesus could believe in you or like have faith in you or that you could be trusted with much before he'd ever be happy with you. Do you hear the absurdity even in saying that? We often don't say it, so it, we just let those things ride in our heart. But do we really need Jesus? Is it really appropriate for Jesus to trust us? No, he says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in me. I've got you. I don't have these expectations of you that you have of yourself. Instead, to be able to bring the true you, broken and weak, to the true Jesus who made a way for you to be with him and longs to comfort you in your weakness, for us to be able to believe that. It'll change our life. Jesus is the truth. He is the truth. He is the truth of God. He is the precise revelation of who God is. Hebrews 1 says he's the exact imprint of his being. Colossians 1 says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Everything about God, his character, his mind, his heart toward us is perfectly displayed in the person of Jesus. He is the truth. If you've seen Jesus... If you've known Jesus, you know who the Father is. I'm going to share two scriptures here, and I want you to stick with me on this, because at first it might seem like they're not, like, what do these have to do with each other? But just stay with me. In John 8, 32, Jesus says this. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free you will know the truth and the truth will set you free now in mark chapter 2 verse 17 jesus said it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick i haven't come to call the righteous but the sinner Okay, so he's, again, there's a word picture going on here that there's, these things are synonymous that the healthy would be the righteous and those who need a doctor, the sick would be sinners. Okay. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay. And just to clear, just so there's no confusion, Jesus isn't saying that some people are sick and some people are healthy. He's not saying that some people have their own righteousness and some people are sinners. What he's saying is everyone's sick. Everyone is a sinner. Some people admit it, right? Some people refuse to admit that they're sick, they go on acting like they're healthy. Some people refuse to acknowledge that they are a sinner, that they're broken, that they're weak, and that they need a Savior, and they think they have their own righteousness. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But you will not know the freedom that this verse is talking about or the healing that Jesus offers if we don't bring the true us to the true Jesus. You can't bring someone else who's not you, who's not sick, to the Savior and the doctor who you think is not there with your own good in mind, but is there waiting for you to be better before he's ready to help you and experience freedom. That won't happen. We're all inclined to believe the lie that God looks on us with this disappointed or severe kind of furrowed brow disposition for a number of different reasons. And you need to hear this this morning. That's a lie about who God is. That is not who God is. What's true about God is the opposite. But see, that feeling that we have leads to living. It, it, it's, it's born in shame. And in that shame and, and that feeling toward God of how he's seeing us with that furrowed brow disposition it causes us to start to distance ourselves from God. And we start believing that we need to hide who we are out of shame. We need to be somebody different. We need to present something different because every time I'm who I am, I feel shame. I feel like I can't be close to my God. But Jesus didn't die for our masks. He doesn't want a Botox version of you. There's no plastic surgery in the kingdom of God. There is only truth, there is light. And you need to hear this this morning. He knows who you are. The masks we walk around with, they're not fooling God. They're not even fooling some people. Sometimes we fool ourselves and we fool some people for a time. But it doesn't fool him. While we think that we're making ourselves safe or more comfortable, he's just waiting for us to take the mask off and get what he really has for us. I'm going to read you a little quote out of uh, this book, Gentle and Lowly, I would highly recommend. Um, he says, uh, this is this is very early on in the book, just talking about the heart of Jesus toward us says, we tend to picture the risen Christ approaching us with a severe and sour disposition. This is why we need a Bible. Our natural intuition, meaning our feelings, the conclusions we come to from our own experiences, from our own feelings, from our own hurts, from our, our own lives, our natural intuition can only give us a God like us or like someone like us. The God revealed in the scripture deconstructs our intuitive ideas of God and startles us with one whose in infinite perfection is matched only by his infinite Gentleness. Now I don't know if you can believe that right now, but what he's saying, and is true, is what the scripture tells us that as infinite in his holiness, in his perfection, in his beauty, and his glory as God is, he is just as infinite in his gentleness, in his care, and his love, and his acceptance of his children. So this might be surprising to you, but I want want you to not just let that roll off your back. Let it annoy you until it seeps in and you believe it. It'll change your life. Or maybe you know this to be true. You know it intellectually. You know doctrine, you know what the Bible says, but still in your relationship with God, in your experience of life with God, you still experience that, that distance, that feeling from Him that He's not happy with me. He is gentle and lowly in heart. And that's just not a general statement, that's toward us. He is immeasurable mercy and amazing grace. He has taken care of all of your sins so that you need never be afraid again. Never. There is no fear of God. Instead, you can be safe and near and know that he draws near to you. That's the truth. That is the truth of who Jesus is. And Jesus is the life. The life Jesus brings is a spiritual life. Now, obviously, he's given us physical life. Right? He's created us. He's made us who we are. So that not only gives him claim over us, it also means he knows us intricately. You think you know yourself? He knows every cell of your body. He knows every electron and neutron that makes up every cell of your body. But he gives us, and what Jesus is talking about here, he gives us this new life, this spiritual life. Life that's defined by things like restoration, freedom, peace, joy, security, things that cannot be bought. Jesus made the way for our redemption. He called us to himself out of darkness into light so that we could be seen as we really are, and he gave us new life in him so that we could be free with him. He's not wanting to take us back to the garden. He's not wanting us to stay there. You know what happened there. Adam and Eve sinned, and what did they do? They hid, right? And ever since then, the plan of God has been to change that so that we could be free in the light with him. And that's what we have now. And then he's filled us with his spirit so that we have him until he returns. We have his presence every day with us until the day that he returns. And in the meantime, we are his voice. We are his hands and his feet pointing to the good news that there is a way home. He has made a way for us, that there is a freeing truth to be known that will set us free, that there is real life in Jesus forever. But to experience his life, we have to believe in him, and we have to come to him in truth. If you don't, you have to earn your own way. You have to pretend and project. And when you do that, you become a slave to it. You know, if if what's driving you is I need to be accepted, and in order to be accepted, I need to put my best foot forward. I need to give you an image of me that's not exactly accurate, but I want you to think better of me so that you'll like me. And as soon as I do that, I can never go back on that. Because what's motivating me is I want you to like me, and I'm believing that the only way you're going to like me is if I'm good enough which is a direct correlation to how you see God. And that's hard work. I mean, it is hard work. It's Stress, it's anxiety, and it does not give you life. It sucks the life out of you. Psalm 32 says, when I kept quiet about my sins, When I ignored the truth of who I really am, when I wouldn't admit my sin and my weakness, my bones wasted away. There is a weight on the body and the soul when our life is spent covering and projecting an image that isn't real, and it takes life from us. When Jesus has come to give us life. So when you always have to be put together, it's exhausting Can I get an amen? I mean, am am I the only one who does this? It's exhausting. You know what it makes me want to do? Stay away from people. Because when I'm around you and I feel like I have to do this exhausting exercise of making you think that I'm something that I'm not, I just get tired and weary. And it's just easier to not be with you. I'd rather sit home and binge, right? And I'm leaving that (laughs) open-ended. There's plenty of things to binge. (laughs) And here's what we deal with. If they found out what I'm really like, right? You fill in the blank. If they found out what I'm really like, we fear that. What? They're going to reject me. They're not going to like me. What's Peter thinking? I haven't even failed yet. And you're saying I've failed. What is... Well, True intimacy is you being able to be the true you. And that true you being fully known by the other person or God. And you being accepted. And them being fully them. Honest. Broken, fat, ugly, whatever it is, however you feel about yourself, and be loved and accepted by the other, and you know that. And when two people, or you and God, encounter it, now God's already there, right? But when, when two people do that, that is the freedom, the joy, the intimacy that Jesus is calling us into. Praise God. Yeah. And can I tell you the elephant in the room? This is... Sorry. I'm, I'm a grandfather now, so I like ramble, and I... Um, while you, or while I, are putting on a facade and trying to put my best foot forward with all of you, whatever context we're in. I won't say all of us, because I don't know all of us, but I would guess, probably all of us, most of us are doing the same thing. We all do it together. So we're not talking about it. We're not acknowledging it, but we're all doing the same thing, together. And that's the opposite of us being built together as living stones, right? Living stones are free. They have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, giving life, walking in the light, truth, knowing who Jesus truly is. But when you're not doing that, here's what happens. No one ever knows you're hurting. Nobody can know, you can't let people know. No one knows that you're in pain. No one can share in your tears. You have to bear your frustrations alone. And most of all, you end up keeping your pain and your hurts and your failures and your tears and your anxieties and your worries and your brokenness from the one who most wants to just wrap you up and comfort you in them all, to be nearest to you, that you would know that in your pain, Jesus' heart is breaking with you. That in your anger, he stands with you and he understands what's going on in you. In your broken weakness, he's running to you to help you and to encourage your weary soul. That's who he is and that's what we're resisting. But that's what we most want, isn't it? We just think we can't have it if we're who we really are. But if we're who we're pretending to be, we don't need it. Now, somebody might be thinking with all this, are you you saying that we, we should just live however we want? We can just do whatever we want and be comfortable with that and Jesus is good with that? No. No, but what I'm saying is that the life Jesus offers is a place of freedom. It's a place of comfort for those who trust him as their own. Freedom and comfort. Is that your experience? For many of us, it's not. I would say this. I would say this. I think that we are far more freaked out by our sin and our brokenness than Jesus is. Actually, I don't think he's freaked out by it at all. He killed it. He took it. Scripture tells us that he's not ashamed of us. Then why do we shame ourselves? Because we don't see him clearly. We don't see the truth of who Jesus is. I think that we would see far more change in our lives if we would stop trying to change. Don't don't react yet. I think that we would see far more change, far more freedom, far more peace and joy in our lives if we spent way more time with Jesus, believing the truth of how Jesus truly sees us and receiving the love and affection that he truly has for us instead of being so focused on our sin and failures and spending all of our time trying to stop. I'll give you one more quote from this book. Sorry, I've got a creeping microphone. As long as you fix your attention on your sin, you will fail to see how you can be safe. But as long as you look to the high priest, you will fail to see how you can be in danger. Looking inside ourselves, we can anticipate only harshness from heaven. Looking out to Christ, we can anticipate only gentleness. Let me make this point with Hebrews chapter 12. You can turn there if you want to, and then we'll close. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside, set aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and, run, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? By grinding down on our sin and beating ourselves up, and coming up with new ways to avoid the things that cause us to stumble, trying to figure out how not to act so broken and weak all the time. No. How do we run the race with endurance that Jesus set before us? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus setting your eyes on Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The beginning, he brought you in, and the finisher, he will take you home of our faith with our eyes on him the whole way. And he went before us, so he knows what's going on. He he went before us through the suffering, through the angst, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Listen, despising the shame. Despising to us means we don't like it. Like it's a bad thing. We we feel bad about it. What what this means is it's, it's, uh, it's cast off. The shame is gone. He took it and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's where we look. And then he goes on to talk about, later in the chapter, being weary. Having drooping hands and arms and weak knees. I just want to ask you, church, are you weary this morning? Are you weary? Maybe not in life. Maybe, maybe work's going great. You've got a good rhythm going on in life. But are you weary in your relationship with the Lord? Are you weary in relationship with others? Are you hurting? Are you alone? Are you afraid? The call this morning is to come to him. The call is not fix yourself. Get better. You can't. Come to him. Come, Jesus. See the true Jesus calling you. And, and bring the real Jesus your real self. Right? Bring the true Jesus, the truth of who Jesus is. Don't fall for that lie anymore. Bring the true Jesus, your true self, who you really are, and let him prove to you that he is who he says he is, that he's going to give you what he says he's going to give you. So come broken, come raw, come needy. He's here for you. He's here for you. He is he is the way maker for you. He made this way for you to be healed, for you to be whole, for you to be loved and know you're loved and for you to be known as you are and know you're accepted and to be free in that. Listen, if you come to him, if you come to the true Jesus and you give him the real you, you will Know the truth, and the truth will set you free.